Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Monica Garza, who is the Charlotte Wagner Director of Education at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. In this capacity, Monica is responsible for a broad range of educational programs, aimed at museum visitors and the local community, spanning children, teens, and adults. Monica has been with the ICA for 15 years. Prior to her work there, she had roles with the Museum of Fine Arts and the Lawndale Arts Center in Houston and the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego. Monica earned her bachelor's degree in art history from the University of Houston and her master's in art history from the University of New Mexico. She and her family live in the Boston area. Monica, welcome. Thanks for doing the show with me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm always amazed by the great work that goes on at the ICA, and this is an opportunity for us to talk a little bit more deeply about it and also about your own career journey and share with the audience some of the things that you've learned along the way in your work in the different museums that you've been in over the years. So Sounds good. Let's start with what you're doing today. So describe the scope of your role as the ICA's Charlotte Wagner Director of Education. So I oversee a team of about 40 plus employees here at the ICA, and this team develops different types of learning initiatives for youth, families, teens, adults, anyone you can think of, basically. And we also develop and maintain relationships with artists, community partners, and of course, with our audiences as well. And these partnerships can range from working with community gardens in East Boston to health centers as well in the neighborhood. Yeah, when I first got involved with the ICA, I think it was back in 2014 or so, and the teen program was like one of my earliest points of exposure to the museum. So maybe let's go into that first, the phenomenal program. Can you give us an overview of the kind of things that you do for teens during the course of the year? Sure. Our team programs here at the museum have really evolved over the years, I would say. And the ICA offered programs for teens long before I even arrived here. But in the last few years, we've been able to expand them a great deal. And in general, the reason that we focus on teenagers at a contemporary art museum is because it's a natural fit for the type of work that we show here in the museum. There are a lot of artists that bring artwork into our galleries that deal with environmental issues, technology, issues of identity, anything you can think of. And those are a lot of the types of issues and themes that a lot of adolescents are thinking about as well and trying to make sense of them. So it's a natural fit for us in terms of our audiences. And at the moment, we offer three different levels of engagement. I like to think of them like three different buckets of programs here at the ICA. 
The first one is it might be coming with a school group for the first time, low barrier, teacher might be bringing you in for the first time, or you might be coming for a teen night, which are big events where teens are creating those activities for other teens. So it's very low commitment type program. And then we move up that scale all the way to the more intensive programs that we have, which can be year-round or multi-year programs. And that includes our fast-forward program, which is our film production class, or also our teen arts council and so forth. So there's different uh, ways for teenagers to get engaged with the museum. Talk a little bit more about the teen arts council. To me, that's another piece that's really unique about what you're doing for teens, you know, that they're, it's a multi-year thing and they're very involved in programming, as you sort of alluded to a minute ago. Yeah, so our outreach efforts here at the museum are really trying to recruit Boston teens as much as we can. And so we get a cross-section of teens from the city and beyond as well. The Teen Arts Council is made up of about 12 teens and they work with us and these are stipend positions here at the ICA. And these teens meet on a weekly basis to immerse themselves on some of the art making or the artists that are in town and so forth, learn more about it, but also to develop resources or interview artists and record that and create different types of experiences for their peers. I would say that those are the types of programs where we have long lasting relationships with a lot of those participants, because they might be here for their full high school experience, their whole tenure. So very often we run into some of the alumni in our galleries or some of our events, which is always, we're always very grateful to see that, appreciative. You were covering some of this, you know, what happens to the Teen Arts Council members in in a recent meeting that we were in together. What did you learn about how these teens have taken art with them into their adult lives? For some of the teens or alumni now, what we learned is that those that are going to college feel better prepared by participating in one of our programs here at the museum. I think that the deadlines that we had, the responsibilities that we gave young people, but also the supports that were there and made sure that they were aware of them. Knowing all of that and just having that type of experience before going to college, I think was very useful for them. That was definitely something that came out. For other alumni who want to be artists, what we learned is that they are also seeking the business side of art and being an artist. And so that is something that we're actually taking into account right now in terms of our future planning to figure out how to move forward. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always amazed me that these kids, they come from really diverse backgrounds. It's incredible how this is like a, a, a life-changing period for them because they come into this. And, you know, I've heard comments from the teens, you know, talking about how wow, finally, I feel like there's a place that I belong and that there's other people like me. And just that sense of community that they get from whether they're on the Teen Arts Council or even just coming to the teen nights. It's really a great thing that, you know, do so many things to both expose kids to art who probably wouldn't otherwise have gotten that exposure and also give them something that they take with them in terms of their own identities. Sure. And I mean, I think the other thing worth pointing out here is the population of Boston, and especially in our school district here in the city where it's a predominantly, we're an immigrant city. And there are people that are moving into the city from all over the world and creating these safe spaces for people to gather and get to know each other while making art is just, you know, a huge plus for people. You do a bunch of things for younger kids as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that encompasses? 
Sure. We do offer different types of activities for younger children. And really our focus for those types of activities has been on art making as a family unit or children working with their guardian or whomever the adult in their life may be. And, you know, we see the many benefits of concentrating on a unit like this family unit. For instance, we see these this sort of intergenerational cooperation, communications, and also for adults to be able to see young people, young children, to dive into art materials and create new worlds and create new narratives is really fantastic because it's, unfortunately, that is something that we see where adults are hesitating to jump in with the materials and they're not comfortable with being an artist. But Children have no barriers. So it's like they'll just dive in. And that's really wonderful. So there's a benefit from all sides, I should say. Yeah. It's funny that you bring up the discomfort that adults have with this. I personally experienced this last week. We had a painting event as part of celebrating Holi, uh, the Indian festival. And, you know, we were all supposed to paint something that made us happy on a little canvas that was probably about four by six inches. And I was super intimidated about doing it, but I finally got roped into it because I think I'm the least artistic person in my entire family. And so I was a little bit worried about how it would come out. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was fun. It was quick. I now have it sitting on my desk and I I look at it every day thinking, oh, I could have done that better. And I could have done that better. better. And now I want to, like, you know, paint another one and try and improve on version one. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, hopefully then the canvas will keep getting larger, too. Maybe, maybe it will. Across all of the youth programs that you do, how much do you actually get outside the museum and into the schools and other places in the community with the education programs that you run? Well, you know, we have a pretty strong belief here in our department that we work beyond the traditional museum borders, meaning that we work beyond the brick and mortar site of the building. And so we are on site, we are online. And we are off-site at many different types of venues. As I mentioned, we do go to schools, we do go to farmers markets, and sometimes we even go to health centers as well. Mm-hmm. So we try to be as flexible as we can. We're just trying to make sure that we continue to be responsive, like we are responding to community needs. And so that might mean for us to continue to be flexible as we move forward with our work. Yeah, you know, you mentioned sort of adapting to what the community needs. A great example of that is what you were doing during the pandemic, you know, where you were distributing art kits. You know, share a little bit about kind of how that program, you know, came into being and what it involved and the kind of impact that it's had during the time when kids couldn't go to school, couldn't get access to an art teacher. And so therefore, whatever they were going to do, they would have to do at home. Sure, sure. So what happened when the pandemic hit here in Boston is that we were having our communications with some of our community partners in one of the neighborhoods here in Boston. And these are people that we have been developing relationships with over the years. And it was interesting because during these personal communications that we were exchanging, it became very clear that there was a common thread that every community group leader was saying in this neighborhood. And they were all basically expressing the lack of resources and, and specifically like access to food as well in the neighborhood. And kids were not going to school. So there was a lot of isolation. Kids were scared. Everybody was scared, of course, during that time. It was pretty, these were dark times. And so what we decided to do is that we pulled together these community organizations and 
also partnered with the museum catering company that we work with here, which of course they closed shop too. And we together, we created a food distribution and an art kit distribution system. And so we were distributing at least 400 boxes of fresh food and fresh dairy to families through these community organizations. And each of these boxes included an art kit. The art kits came out of the education department. And basically what we were doing is that we reached out to a social worker that we had historically been working with and asked for advice about how best to design these art kits for kids we knew were feeling scared and isolated and needed some sort of outlet. And she gave some really great advice. And some of the advice that she shared with us is to make sure that the art kits bring some sense of hope to Mm. families and to their homes, but also to remind young people of their own sense of agency. And that's the beauty about art. We can provide them with some art materials and they do have that agency to create something on their own, however they want. And so the art activities themselves did have a lesson, some sort of activity that was co-designed with a contemporary artist. And contemporary artists went above and beyond working with us on these activities, which we're very happy about. And we also included any art materials that a child might need or a family might need to create this activity. And so it really ranged the activities. It ranged from sidewalk chalk activities to drumming which we included like these professional drumsticks from percussionists that lives here in the Boston area. And kids were encouraged to make their own drum set using all of the packing materials from the food boxes, for example. I'm sure their parents love that. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I think the whole neighborhood loved me. (laughs) (laughs) But we were just really determined to kind of remind children and their families about like the amazing creativity that they can bring even in these dark times. And so that was a project that we worked on for quite a long time, actually. What did you hear back from the people in these communities in terms of the art kits and the food and the impact that you had? We heard directly from the community organizations that we worked with. And because they were helping deliver some of the boxes of food at people's homes, because and. On occasion, an entire family might have had COVID at all at the same time. So community organizations were leaving these boxes and these art kits directly in front of their homes so that they can access that. And they just said that it just brought a lot of light, I think, uh, lightness to the home. And I think kids really loved it. And it's really influenced the way we think about how we deliver our work now. Yeah. How so? Well, again, it's going back to the idea of going beyond the brick and mortar of a museum and also the idea of being able to access young people exactly where they're at. And they might feel safest in their home rather than exploring new neighborhoods where the museum might be or anything of that sort. So it's really opened up a door for us. Yeah, that's great. The the pandemic, obviously, was hard for everybody, but it must have been really difficult period for you for the museum. I mean, you were closed for the better part of two years without the ability to generate revenue from ticket sales and merchandise sales and things like that. How did the museum manage through that time period? So yes, it was a difficult time like everyone else had to deal with as well. But we kind of had to pivot rather quickly. I mean, aside from trying to learn how to use Zoom for the first time and all these other new platforms, we really focused a great deal on 
purpose of our work. So like these art kits were a great example to bring our team together, to create them together. In fact, I would say that part of the education department includes everyone that's in the galleries, like our gallery staff. And right. so because they could not work, they actually pivot, they did pivot and they helped create some of these art kits from home as well. So we were yeah. able to expand even like our distribution during school vacation weeks where, you know, it's in the middle of winter here in Boston, which is dreadful enough. So that really helped kids during that time too. You know, I know, I know financially the museum took out a PPP loan, like a, a lot of small businesses did and used that as a way of kind of bridging that gap and continuing to be able to pay staff during that period of time. So it was a dark period, as you said earlier. It was a dark period, but I think that I would say the ICA is a very unique museum from a lot of yeah. other organizations that I've worked at. And it was very important for this organization to make sure that people continue to work and stay employed. That was something that we were all very focused on. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, I've always had the view that the museum punches above its weight class, right? It's it's certainly not the biggest museum in, in Boston, let alone other cities, and probably not the best known museum in Boston. And yet at the same time, you play on the national stage. And we'll we'll get to some of that, you know, in the course of the conversation. And it's also it's not a big building, right? Didn't have a permanent collection until not that long ago. And so it's always amazed me how much the ICA has been able to accomplish with, you know, the resources that it does have. And just, you know, this notion, as you said, and I've heard the museum director, Jill Mebedow, talk about as well, you know, getting beyond the four walls, you know, and being a presence in the community, you really embody that. So to me, it's always, it's really impressed me over the years that that I've known the ICA. Well, it also takes people like you who are involved with the ICA for us to think about our work in this way too. Yeah. Is the museum back to pre-COVID level of activity at this point in terms of visitors and exhibitions and events and all of that? It sure feels like it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I think right now as we're recording this conversation, it's the end of March and we have school groups pretty much booked every day till the end of the school year. So yeah. we are already thinking of the summer season. It's going to be a busy one. So yeah, I think we've already hit that mark. Well, that's great. It's great to hear. Coming back to some of the educational programs, you, you've you also done things for art educators, including a national event that you've run in certain years. Can you give us a sense of, of what that's about? Sure. Over the years, we've hosted teen convenings, actually, and they're opportunities to bring a small number of arts educators who work with teenagers. But we also invite teenagers that are part of those programs to come to the ICA in Boston. And we've done it for a few years now. And these are just conversations for intergenerational conversations to really understand how the arts and museums play a role in the lives of young people. And I should point out that these conversations are teen-led. So a lot of these conversations and the themes are based on what the teenagers are thinking about at the moment. And it's been very rewarding. Since the pandemic, we haven't quite done it. We did it with alumni recently, like our team program alumni, just to see where they were at. But it's just a really useful way for us to continue to understand our work and where they're at too. So what do you hear from educators around the country about the state of art education in the United States right now? Well, we're still kind of in this position where everyone's still trying to figure it out at this end of the pandemic. 
what stays, what will continue. I will say that during the pandemic, so many education departments were shut down around the country. And I probably internationally, I could say that too. So it's this moment right now where a lot of museums are trying to rebuild, but at the same time, there are a lot of arts educators that are trying to figure out what their next step is going to be, whether to stay in museums or move on and so forth. So it's kind of this interesting time for our field. I am seeing right now where a lot of former education directors and museums are moving on to very different types of positions too, where there might be signing up to work at children's museums or working at as directors of art museums around the United States. It's an interesting time for our field, for sure. You do programs for adults too. What's the mix of that look like? Yes, we do offer programs for adults and it really ranges from gallery conversations and discussions and tours to artist talks as well. But we also try to also include some experiential learning for adults too at the ICA. And so one of the, that's one of the things I'm working at the moment for this summer, where we have an artist who is very much focused on wellness and well-being. So okay. we'll have a little bit of a very hands-on activities, but hopefully people will feel a little lighter after they participate. Certainly when that William Forsythe exhibit was there and it had all sorts of activities that you would, physical activities <laughs> that you would do. I mean, people aren't used to being able to touch art in, sure. in the museum, but this was very much a participatory experience that exhibit brought. And it was a really, really popular exhibit, as I remember. It was very popular. And I will say that anything that's experiential, whether it's yeah in exhibit or if it's an art activity of some sort, all ages participate in one way or another. They love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like that active learning. It was funny when I brought some friends to it after I'd been through it. And, you know, they were, I think, a little bit skeptical about whether a night at the ICA was be <laughs> a, a fun evening for us. But afterwards, they said that was really fun. It was, <laughs> it was, like, it was like an adult playground, that, you know, that you got to, to got to go experience inside the museum. So That is true. We, we had quite a few characters come to the ICA for that exhibit. A lot of oh, people got excited about it. I'm sure you did. Now, you mentioned earlier that the gallery staff all report to you. What are the roles of your gallery staff, the various things that you are looking for them to do? Well, we have several teams, actually, that work on in the galleries here at the museum. One of them, we have a team of contract gallery educators, so a lot of people that have a background in education, the education mm-hmm. field or the arts field, who are facilitating conversations with groups, basically K through 12 or college and university and adults. So we do have that group as well. The other group that we have are the visitor assistants, which is a team of about 30 people, I would say. And they have very diverse backgrounds from the humanities to fine art, anything you can think of, their backgrounds. We have a lawyer up there, you know, law student. We have a little bit of everything up there. So they learn about the exhibitions and the art on view and really are helping to bridge that gap between the visitor who might be here for the first time and the work of art. They're here to kind of break down those barriers if there are any perceived or real barriers to engaging with a work of art. So not only are they the eyes and ears in the galleries in terms of making sure everything is okay, but they are trained to facilitate conversations as well. You made reference to ultimately museums, they're popular, but they can also be intimidating, right? Particularly for people who haven't maybe 
grown up going to museums, had that exposure. What do you do besides, you know, just the way that you train your gallery staff? What are the other things that the museum does to make to make itself more accepting of a broad audience and, you know, including people who do have that limited art knowledge? I will say on a personal level, I never visited an art museum until I was in college. Yeah. So I did not grow up with art museums whatsoever. And so there are quite a few of us that have that background and that experience. So it's kind of like a nice balance within our team of different types of backgrounds. But we try our best to think about our work a little bit differently. As I mentioned, we really seek out different types of partnerships, really work with different types of individuals on some of our offerings. So we think about our work a little bit differently. And I think that's one thing that's very good about this museum also is that it's very engaged with what is happening in the city of Boston. It's very Mm -hmm. common for us to work with different departments in the city of the government city of Boston as well. So we try to get our work out there so that to make sure that we are serving our community as best as we can. Do free days every now and then, you know, that are purposefully designed to bring in people who might not have the economic means or maybe just getting to come in for free as an enticement to come to the museum for other reasons. And I can remember you also seeing statistics that, that I've seen you and others show over the years about new people that you're bringing into the museum you know, that hadn't been to the ICA before, maybe hadn't been to an art museum before. And ultimately, all of that contributes, right, to giving people that deeper appreciation, a broader audience, an appreciation for art. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's one thing when we've evaluated some of our programs in the past, that was one thing our evaluator would always indicate to us where as soon as, for instance, a teenager might come to the ICA for the first time, find their way with mass like the public transportation, getting here, seeing what's available, that's the hook. And then after that, they're hooked. So anything that we can do, whether it's free days or busing, we started a bus transportation fund also for teachers as well locally. Anything that we can do to make sure that they have easy access to what we have to offer, that's what we're thinking about. Which is great. Do it well beyond your four walls last year. Since the ICA was selected to commission an artist for the U.S. Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, an amazing opportunity to make the ICA more visible on a global stage. You picked Simone Lee as the artist. You ran a whole bunch of events around her exhibition in Venice. What did you do in terms of the educational programming? Sure. So as part of that proposal from the museum, there were a few educational components attached to that. And the one I spent the most time with was working with our team on a international teacher program. And so it was a four-day event. We partnered with the Peggy Guggenheim Collection in Venice, where they have an extraordinary program for teachers. And so we worked together for a bilingual workshop. We were able to bring our model for in-school, in-school learning and how we introduce contemporary art into classrooms to Venice. So we were able to work with 24 teachers in Venice and also bring in two artists from the United States to also work with the teachers. And the Guggenheim in Venice also brought in an Italian teacher. So it was a complete international experience working together on this extraordinary program. And the teachers got a chance to see Simone's work, study it, visit the Biennale, look at other exhibits and It was just a really rewarding and glorious time. 
Yeah, I didn't make it down to Venice, unfortunately, but I wish I'd been able to go. It sounded like just a, an amazing opportunity for the museum to be part of that celebration that they, do, that they do regularly there. Yeah, and we're very excited that a lot of those works will be now traveling in the United States. So some of the work that we did in 2022 in Venice, we'll be able to kind of reuse some of it and revisit it in 2023. You had not been to an art museum before you went to college. So how did you get interested in art? Yes, that's an interesting question. So I grew up always drawing as a child. I was one of those kids that would get the Sunday paper and draw all of the little comic strips and so forth and redraw them every Sunday. And I always liked drawing. I always enjoyed it a great deal. I, I was a maker then. And when I was in college, that I went to an art museum and saw this exhibition that was something like the 400 years of Mexican art. Mm. And I had never seen anything like that before. I mean, we're talking about works from hundreds of years ago to yep. now. And so that really blew my mind. And the idea that this was something that I could think about, study, and also retell these narratives was really exciting for me. What did you go to college thinking that you were going to major in originally? <laughs> I had no idea. The other subject that I really liked was biology. So I was like, oh, I don't know. Anything, <laughs> anything, I don't know. A hand doctor, a foot doctor, anything. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do. Did you gravitate more toward contemporary art specifically, or was your interest more general? It was pretty general at the start. It was very, very general. I was interested in Latin American art, but it was very general. It wasn't until I was a graduate student that my thinking expanded. It went in a totally different direction. How so? I went to graduate school at the University of New Mexico. And that is, I mean, besides wonderful landscape, beautiful yeah. place to live for a few years, but they have a very strong photography program. And mm -hmm. a lot of well-known photographers and photo historians have worked or studied there at UNM in Albuquerque. And so that really exposed me to the history of photography and the professor that I had there at the time. And, you know, he became my mentor, still is my mentor, I would say. He also was very interested not only in fine art type photography, but also vernacular photography. So yeah. like the everyday photo processes and the different histories that are involved with that. And that just really opened up my eyes that, you know, I could take this in a very different direction. Yeah. You went to work for the Lawndale Center? Was that your first full-time job? No, actually, right before that, I worked at the Museum Fine Arts in Houston okay. for a very short period of time. And I was a curatorial assistant because at that time I thought, oh, maybe I could be a curator. I could do research or something of that sort. So I yeah. was there for you know a short period of time before moving on to the Lawndale Art Center. Yeah. And, and what did you do when you were at the Lawndale Art Center? So the Lawndale Art Center is an artist-run organization. It's small. And it was a good opportunity for me to get a glimpse of the behind the scenes of putting an exhibition together from beginning yeah. to end. So I was there to help artists basically and to support them and also to support an artist advisory board from the city of Houston. So in terms of helping the artists, it meant helping with their press releases or helping them paint their walls or build their walls, a little bit of everything. And then one of the things that I noticed while I was there is that no one was doing public programming around any of the exhibitions. And that's when I started dabbling with that. And how did you then end up, you know, going out to San Diego? That was your next stop, right? 
that's correct. Contemporary art there. Yeah. And so I was thinking a great deal about where I wanted to take my career. And I wanted to be back in an art museum of some sort. And I thought that the San Diego Museum, the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, was a good opportunity because it was mid-size organization, mm. great waves, <laughs> West Coast, a lot of sunshine. So, but I think the other thing that really attracted me to the San Diego area was that it was a border town. So they had a lot of people that they worked with, artists that lived both in Tijuana and also in the San Diego area. And originally, I'm actually from a border town in Texas. So mm. that made sense for me to go there and to ex yeah. experiment with that. What do you remember? being your biggest sort of life or work learnings in, in your early days working at the Lawndale Art Center and then working out in San Diego? Well, I think I started learning a lot about the different stakeholders in terms of the Lawndale Art Center, working directly with artists and understanding their needs and their wants and their desires for an exhibition and their careers as artists. But then in San Diego, you know, this sort of bi-national space and you know that gave me a totally different view of what audiences want different audiences want from an art museum and how they want to engage with the art so that was there were a lot of learnings for that and then you went back to houston right I Museum did. of fine arts what prompted that shift for you they recruited me yeah. <laughs> so they, nice. sought, <laughs> they sought me out and I went back and I went back in a very different role, this time in the education department. Yeah. So I was the associate director of education, which was a new position at the time. And I was working with adult programs and family programs and other types of community outreach while I was there. Yeah. And it was an interesting experience because of my background in contemporary art specifically. I realized that a lot of, even internally, I mean, this is a large organization, a lot of the curators were seeking me out because specifically in that department, because of that experience and that knowledge, it was a little bit different. Yeah, because I'm sure a lot of people who come up through the museum world may not have a stop at a contemporary art museum. You know, they stick more to the you know traditional museums in terms of the more historical collections, mm -hmm. right? So that was a role in an education capacity. When you got into that role, did the light kind of come on for you and say, this is really what I want to do specifically? Because you'd, you'd had that curatorial experience, as you mentioned. And was there something that just felt right and natural for you when you had that first education room? I would say that when I really felt that it was back at Lawndale because yeah. I was creating those early activities and just seeing how people wanted to engage with the art in these yeah. activities that I was designing that was a huge light bulb for me. And it was yeah. like, this is the path I, I want to take. I think when I got to Houston, I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to be in a large or a mid-sized organization. And yeah. that's what was really on my mind at that time. And what did you decide ultimately fit best for you? Well, at that time, I thought that I wanted to focus on contemporary art. I mean, first of all, everybody was seeking me out to talk about yeah. contemporary art at, the, at a fine arts museum. And so when this position here in Boston came up, I think the other thing that was really attractive to me was not the weather, but the idea of working with adolescents, which is something yeah. that I hadn't very deeply done before. And yeah. the ICA here in Boston was, you know, small when I arrived as well. And so the idea of also building new systems and like a totally new infrastructure was exciting to me. How long did you deliberate over a move that far north? 
<laughs> well, I can tell you a story, a little anecdote, but at one of the, when I came for my interview it was in June and I was shocked that I needed a jacket, which I hadn't mm -hmm. brought. <laughs> so that was a little, uh, that took me aback and I kept referring to that moment, but I'm thankful that I have a partner that's from the East coast from New York. So that helped me make this decision. Yeah, it's certainly from a climate perspective, a lot different than being down in, <laughs> down in Houston. So I'm yes. sure it was an adjustment for you. So the course of your career thus far, what are the strengths that you've sort of relied on to help you be successful in the different roles that you've had? I think just staying open to opportunities and whether that's for my career or whether that be for programming here at the museum or anything of that sort, just listening. Yeah. listening to what's out there and then understanding what your next move is going to be. Yeah. That's important. What have you had to work to develop? You know, it's interesting. I, I've been thinking about that in terms of reflecting on my career. I think the one thing I've had to work on since I first started was being comfortable with my voice and being comfortable with my experience and knowing that I do have that experience. That was an adjustment for me uh, when I was starting out. And especially like in my 20s and early 30s and so forth. But thankfully, I'm, I'm in a different place now. Yeah. So what are you working on developing now? Well, one of the things that we're working on is, might not sound exciting, but you know, we've been thinking a lot about sustainability and taking a look at all of our programs collaboratively here in our department and really having some serious conversations about what's working, what's not working, and how can we do it better? Making sure that it's something that can live even beyond us. Who are your biggest influences or what are your biggest influences outside of family and close friends? I would say that the people that I work with, like the communities that I work with, are the biggest influence in terms of how I'm going to move forward with my work. Those yeah. conversations make such an impact on me, whether it was during the pandemic, learning about the scarcity of food or access to art materials or anything of that sort, that's really what keeps me going and that influences yeah. me. Yeah. And, and have there been people along the way who you would sort of look back and say, so-and-so really helped me and made a huge difference in my career? I would say, yeah. I mean, there's definitely mentors along the way that I've had. I think the other thing that has occurred is that if I remember someone, I might reach out to them and just have like a casual conversation and I have found out that they'll remember that conversation all the time. And so yeah. they might forward me something that they've seen or they've read about. And that's really fantastic. I remember I once had a conversation with an artist who was visiting here in Boston. And he was telling me that every year he asks someone if they could be his mentor. And yeah. it's interesting because when we think about mentorship, we think about it at the beginning of our career. But really, that's a lifetime process. You hear more now about reverse mentoring where the senior people, aka the older people, are tapping into the, you know, more junior, younger people mm -hmm. to understand a variety of things, right? Explain oh, social yeah. media to me, explain how your generation <laughs> thinks about this. And as you say, it's it's got to be a lifelong thing, right? Exactly. Exactly. You, do you remember, are there things that you specifically did to foster the mentoring relationships that you had, or did they just kind of come about? You know, one of the things that I did early on when I was in college is I took advantage of either volunteer opportunities or internships, paid internships. So every year I had some sort of internship and that really helped me get into different workspaces and develop those a lot of different relationships. And I always recommend that, suggest that to students that I meet with today. 
So what do you do to recharge? Keep yourself energized? Lots of walks. <laughs> I take a lot of walks with family. I read a great deal. Traveling as well really recharges yeah. me quite a bit. I come from a very large family. So just spending time with family is a great thing. Yeah. Is most of your family in other parts of the country or have any of them come north? They come once in a while, but all of them are in the South. So yeah, <laughs> they don't come very often. Other than, you know, the two weeks in the summer when it's really warm, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I know the museum is getting ready for the Simone Lee exhibit, but what else is ahead for you and for the ICA? One of the things that we're working on at the moment is we're preparing for opening our seasonal space. We have a summer space in the neighborhood of East Boston. And the artist that's going to be featured there, his name is Guadalupe Maravilla. And he is an artist that thinks a great deal about wellness and healing as well and healing practices. So the last few months, I would say probably last year, we've been meeting with the artist, but also meeting with different community members in the neighborhood to better understand what practices exist there mm -hmm. to see if there are opportunities that we can work together. And so we have a full menu of different types of activities and programs that we're going to be rolling out for the summer season, which I'm yeah. excited about it. What's the ethnic mix of that neighborhood? Well, it's a predominantly immigrant neighborhood, definitely. Right. And Spanish speaking is very high. There's a large population of residents that are from El Salvador, especially. Mm -hmm. So there are definitely people that we're trying to connect with. Have you heard anything of particular note in terms of how they think about health and wellness that you're trying to incorporate into the programming that you do this summer? Yeah, it's been a wonderful learning experience for me personally as well, because I think that, you know, this is what I'm gathering is that I would say that since the pandemic, especially where access to care continues to be limited, a lot of people are doing virtual visits with doctors and sometimes it's difficult to get appointments nowadays. Communities are thinking a great deal of the different practices that different communities from around the world can bring to the table as well. So thinking about wellness and health, not just from curing diseases, but also curing ourselves every day. And so that's been really fascinating for me to hear and also meet with, we're going to be met, meeting with some medical practitioners as well soon who are also thinking about it as well. The last question, when you think back to the early days of your career, what do you wish someone had told you then that you know now? That it's not a straight road. <laughs> It's going to be a zigzag road within your career and not to be scared of the different opportunities that you might uh, stumble upon. Yeah. And I think the point you made earlier about being open, I mean, you'd hear now people start to talk about this idea of the squiggly career, you know, the nonlinear career. And, and I think it is careers are taking a greater variety of forms. I think with each generation as the opportunity set for most people broadens relative to what the generation that came before them had. And, mm -hmm. and it puts a lot more burden in some ways on you individually to figure things out. It's not like you get a job with a company and you stay there for life anymore. Right. You know, you don't have a pension, you got to manage your own retirement savings. There's a lot more that's been put on the individual, but there's also a lot more choice and how you think about that, right? You know, is it opportunity or is it a burden that choice, right? I think it ultimately that, has a big impact on how you approach a lot of things in terms of your professional life. Definitely. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> it is a double-edged sword. Monica, thank you. This has been really great. Good to connect, cover some of the, your own journey, which I had never talked with you about, I think, in the past. And 
obviously we covered a pretty broad range of things going on at the museum and what you do in the education department. And as I said at the outset, I mean, it's just always impressed the heck out of me, all the great work that you do. So thank you for that. Thank you for the difference you make in the community. Thank you for the difference that you've made, you know, more broadly in some, in terms of the national programs that you run. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for highlighting our work. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. I'd like to thank Monica for joining me today to talk about her work at Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art and the many, many great programs that they run for children, teens, adults, and art educators. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Again, it's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.